I'm going to invite you that you would open your Bible with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. And we've been going through the book of Ephesians in the last chapter, chapter 4, in regards to the walk of the believer, the walk of the believer. And Paul exhorted the church to walk worthy in the calling in with which you were called, that your conduct would live up to your calling. And here in chapter 5, he's now exhorting the church of the Ephesus here of the Ephesians that there would be an evidence in their lives that they have gone through regeneration. That there would be evidence even in our lives that we have been born again, born of the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit has given us new life in Christ Jesus. And now as He's exhorted them to walk worthy, here in chapter 5, we receive now three other exhortations in regards to our walk. He says, walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. Walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. And throughout those different exhortations, he's really laying out a foundation that love and that obedience in the believer is the foundation to our Christian life. Love and obedience is the foundation to our Christian life. Whether it's in regard to the Christian body and the church, as we gather, we need love and obedience. Or the individual believer, your own personal life. Or what about your marriage? Love and obedience is the foundation of every strong marriage. And the family, the home. So in chapter 5, don't miss out. We're going to talk about your personal walk with the Lord. We're going to talk about your marriage. We're going to talk about your children. We're going to talk about the family now. That we need to protect the family. And it's all discussing this within this chapter, chapter 5 of Ephesians. We're going to look at just seven verses this morning, and it's going to give us reference to our imitation. Number two, our holiness. And number three, our accountability. Our imitation, our holiness, and our accountability. And we've titled today's message, The Fruit of Walking in Love. The Fruit of Walking in Love. What is the fruit that follows your life if you're walking in love? What kind of fruit follows your life if you truly are walking in love. Would you stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word as we go to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll read the odd verses. You together will read the even verses out loud. It says this, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. But this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, no covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. We ask, God, that You would speak in this message to us on a personal level. That we would forsake, that we would flee anything that does not display Your love. So Lord, give us the strength, the discernment to discern the times, the signs of the times, and that we would walk in a way that honors you in the days that we live in. In Jesus' name and together we said, Amen. You may be seated. The first exhortation that we receive here in verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 5 is in regards to our imitation. Our imitation. If we are to walk in love, or if we are to expect the fruit of walking in love, it's very important that we pay attention to our imitation. And he says this, therefore, therefore, because your life has been transformed from the inside out. Because we've concluded how Christians should relate to one another. 
We talked about the great one another in Scripture last week. Because you put off the old man and you're putting on the new man and you've been renewed according to His righteousness and according to His holiness because you're living a new life in Christ Jesus. Now, because of that, be imitators of God as dear children. Now, notice what happens here is because he's using this very important word, a very important exhortation. And he says, I am now exhorting you to imitate God, to be a follower of God. That word imitate means to mimic. It means to duplicate. It means to impersonate God, to follow His example, follow His footsteps. As you read verse 1, understand it doesn't say think about God. It doesn't say admire God. It doesn't say adore God, although those things are very needed in the life of the Christian. It doesn't say those things, but in action, imitate God. Make Him our model example. Pattern your habits. Pattern your manner of life according to godliness. Today in the world that we live in, in a culture that is so strong pushing a worldview of a secular agenda, people are pulled in to imitate culture or to imitate the world or to imitate people now or a a vanity fair of the life that we see. But it doesn't say imitate the world. It says imitate God. And it's very important if we are to walk in love, if you today have been calling yourself a believer that you've been born again by the Spirit, that you do not compare yourself to a man. <laughs> that you compare yourself to the standard of other people because the only true standard of holiness is the Lord. So in everything that you do, it says imitate God. In fact, throughout the New Testament, you see that Jesus exhorts the people that were gathering together in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He exhorts them to imitate Him or the Father. And he says this, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That you would be spiritually mature. That you would be spiritually whole. That you would be undivided. That you would be growing spiritually perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But also in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Jesus Himself said again, Therefore, be merciful that we would imitate Him in the way that we show mercy, in the way that we show forgiveness, in the way that we love. Therefore, you shall be merciful just as your Father is also merciful. That we would receive these instructions to imitate Him. Not only in the way that we're spiritually growing, not only in our compassion, in our mercy, in our forgiveness that we receive from the Lord, but also imitate Him in holiness in holiness first peter chapter 1 verse 14 would say this as obedient children you are now called a child of god called to a lifestyle of obedience not conforming yourself to the former lust don't conform yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance when you didn't know any better don't go back to that lifestyle in fact he would say peter as he's exhorting and encouraging the church But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So we are called to imitate God. That we would be followers of God. Following His footsteps. Following His example in spiritual maturity. In compassion. In mercy. In forgiveness. But in holiness. All of these things imitate God. In fact, he gives us the reason as why we are called to imitate God. In verse 1 it says, as dear children. Because of your new identity in Christ, you are His children. And as a child of God, you should have a godly resemblance. The new man's reflection should be of the Father's loving nature. We've been born again. We are the son and the daughters of God. And that new man's birth reflects, the new man's birth reveals the loving character of the father. Have you noticed that children like to learn by instinct when it comes to 
learning. Naturally, they learn by imitation. In fact, I have two sons, and no matter where I go, in the backyard or in the bedroom or in the front yard, wherever I go, they, they go there with me. Whatever I try to do, they're there looking to do the very same thing. And the way that I walk, they, they'll walk. And what I say, they'll say as well. So interesting in imitating their own father. You know, at times when our children imitate us, it can be very, very encouraging. But other times, it's very, very embarrassing, right? I always tell people, if you see my older son dancing, he didn't learn him from me. But here, it's explaining here that when we live according to our new nature as a child of God, we've been born again, we will instinctively imitate our Father. Why? Because we belong to a new family. We are His children. And I want you to know something this morning. Satan wants to destroy that family, the family of God. But as we belong to this family, understand that today, right now, this morning, you have no greater calling, you have no greater purpose than imitating God. That is the goal. That is the purpose. The greatest purpose and the greatest calling in your life is that you would imitate God. The Christian life is designed, if you read Scripture, to reproduce godliness. Reproduce godliness. That we would every day become more godly, godlike believers and Christians. This is why in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul already said that we would grow up to the perfect man, a measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. That we would grow up more into maturity. That we would grow up more to the image of Christ. So he's giving us his exhortation in verse 1, be imitators of God because you are His children. Now here's the example in verse 2. And walk in love. And walk in love. Can we say it out loud together? And Walk in love. Live a life filled with love. As believers, I want you to know something. Love is to be enthroned in your life. Would you remember that? Note that this morning. Write that down. Love is to be enthroned. Love is to govern your life because you are His child. And therefore, He says walk in love. That word walk depicts, it describes progress in the Christian life. When you think of the word walk, think about progress. Think about taking steps forward. Progress that other people see. Because the Christian life is never at a standstill. Today, know that. The Christian life is never at a standstill. It's a life of constant movement following the Spirit. And as Christians, you're either moving forward to God, or you're slipping backward and being more like your old ways. So today, are you walking forward, taking steps to imitate God? In fact, it gives us here the clear instructions as to how we are to walk so that we can walk forward to become more like Christ instead of slipping in our old ways. The most effective way to be an imitator of God is when you walk in love. Is when you walk in love. And notice, He's not asking you the Lord in His Word, God is not asking us, the Holy Spirit, as it authored this verse for us, is not asking us to do something that is foreign to our Christian life. This is not foreign to our Christian life. The new man, the new person that has been born again of the Spirit has been transformed by the love of God. And because we've been transformed by the love of God, that means that we as His children are loving people. <laughs> That people know us because we are loving people. What do loving people do? They build unity. Loving people proclaim peace. But the old man, you know what he does? He, in his nature, is selfish. The old man builds walls. It, it declares war with people. But we are called here in verse 2 to walk in love. How do we walk in love? As every single day we take steps forward towards Calvary. You want to walk in love? Walk towards Calvary every single day. You want to walk in love? You're walking towards the cross every single day 
Because there you find the ultimate supreme example of forgiveness, of mercy, and, in, uh, and love. And notice in verse 2, the second half of verse 2, it would say here, also, as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us. How are we to walk in love? As Christ has loved us. With the measure of Christ's love. The goal is to love as Christ has loved us. That we would display the same kind of self-giving love that you have received. The same selfless love that you have received. Display that same type of love. As Christ has loved us. We are not called to love as other people have loved us. Or because we've been hurt by other people. So we display an attitude now of vengeance. But he's saying here, love as Christ has loved you in obedience. How are we to love in obedience? Not thinking about what you're going to receive. It's oftentimes that when we're called to love, we have thought and learned in today's time and society that love should always be reciprocal. That when we love and we give something in love, we're always expecting, what are are we going to receive in return? That's not the love that it's speaking about here. Because to love means to be vulnerable. To love means to be vulnerable. It means you may not be loved back. It means you may be hurt. It means you may be misunderstood. People may take advantage of you, but that doesn't matter. True love is self-giving love. As Christ has loved you. In fact, notice what it says there in verse 2. And has given Himself for us. Love is a verb. Love is an action. Love isn't something you just study and know and understand. Love is something that we do. It's, it's speaking of this agape love. That Greek word that we all know, agape. It's an unconditional love. A love that has no conditions. You don't put conditions on this type of love. A sacrificial love. A dynamic love. The supreme example of love. Notice, as Christ has loved us unconditionally, sacrificially, that He gave Himself for us there at Calvary. And it says this, He gave Himself for us in two ways. Number one, as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. This here is what we are called to. Use this example. In the Old Testament, they would bring the sacrifice, the offering to become a sacrifice for sins there at the altar. But Christ Himself gave Himself because of His love. He gave Himself to be on the altar, to be the offering, and to be the sacrifice for our sins. He was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. There you see that Christ was an offering. He offered Himself sacrificially. That's what love does. It offers itself sacrificially. And not only did Christ offer Himself sacrificially, notice what took place as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. It was a fragrance to God. The word sweet-smelling aroma is describing an offering that is well-pleasing to God. This pleased the Father. I want you to know that it is always pleasing to God when we walk in love, and when we give ourselves to others. It always pleases the Father. And sometimes God calls us to lay down our lives for others in a very dramatic way. There are times that God is going to call you to do that. There are other times that God is going to call you to do it little by little. And here this love that it explains, that it describes, it's a love that serves other people sacrificially that serves other people sacrificially, that type of love as the love that was as the burnt offering there in Leviticus that was a sweet-smelling aroma to God, that type of love is pleasing to God. Now he begins here about talking and walking in love because love is the foundation, as we mentioned, to the Christian life. And if we walk in love, notice what's going to happen. We will not disobey God. And if we walk in love, we will not hurt other people. You know why a lot of people in the church oftentimes become hurt? Because we stopped walking in love. And we started walking in something else. This is why He's telling us to walk in love. 
I'm going to give you three reasons why we today, why you need to be walking in love. Number one, write this down. Because love is the evidence that you have been born again. Love is the evidence that we have been born again. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, it says this, Beloved, let us love one another. There it is, the great one another again. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God. Everyone who loves has been born again and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. How can you say that you know God and you don't love other people? It's always interesting when you hear people say, well, I love God, I just don't love people. No, that's not the heart of God. <laughs> the heart of God is a loving now nature. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, it would say this, by this we know, we know because of this that we have passed from spiritually now being dead, from spiritual death to being spiritually alive because we love the brethren. Love is the indication. He who does not love his brother also abides in death. If you don't love people, it says right now you're spiritually dead. Love is the evidence that you have been born again. Number two, love is your calling. Love is is your calling. In John 15, verse 13, Jesus would say this, greater love has no man than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. We are called to give up of ourselves sacrificially. That we wouldn't live a selfish lifestyle that always leads to lust instead of love. As Christ has loved us and he gave himself for us, love is the evidence that we've been born again. Love is our calling but number three, finally, love is our responsibility. Do you remember that? Love is your responsibility. You are responsible to be a steward uh, uh, now dispensing love to other people, the love of Christ. It was there after Jesus served the disciples and He washed their feet that He taught them a lesson. <laughs> and He said in John chapter 13, verse 33, He said a new commandment I give to you. I'm going to sum it up for you guys right now. I'm going to break it down, disciples. That you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The badge of the believer is love. That is the indication. That is the identification of the Christian is that he loves other people. In 1 John 3.16, it would say, by this we know love. You want to understand how you know love? That because He laid down His life for us, we also ought to lay our life down for other people. Because this is the model, this is the example that Christ has given us that we wouldn't only love now in, 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 in tongue or in word, but in deed and in truth that we would back it up. In fact, what did he say? He says, what is it good if you say you love someone and they come and they say, well, I'm in need of anything, of something, of just basic practical needs. And you say, I love you. You send them on his way, but you don't meet those needs. How can you say you love them? Let us not only love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In chapter 14, he gave us an example of what it means to walk in love. In verse 34, what did he say? That you would be tenderhearted, forgiving one another. The people that are walking in love are those that are willing to forgive other people. The people that are walking in love are those that are willing to forgive other people. But in verse 2 of chapter 5, the people that walk in love are generous people, naturally. Generosity is a mark of a loving Christian. Generosity. Have you ever been around people that are so generous? You understand, you just feel the love that they have. In fact, they would say in verse 2 that he has given himself for us. Gave himself, gave his life for us. He didn't hold on to his life. Stop holding on to your life. With reservations, with conditions. Give up of your life sacrificially so that you can love other people because love is an attribute of God. Love is an attribute of God that He shares with us. An attribute is a truth about God that, that speaks 
of what is true of his nature. And there are certain attributes that he shares with us. He shares with us his loving nature, that he's merciful, that we can be merciful, that he's compassionate, that he's forgiving, that he's full of grace. There are those things that he doesn't share. He doesn't share his omnipresence, omnipotence with us. He doesn't share those things, but he does share his love that we would display a godly or God-like now nature. And here, as he's already exhorted us in only two verses, that we would be imitators of God by walking in love, by being forgiving, by becoming generous people. Now, he gives a contrast between walking in love, notice what happens here, and the conduct that is not fitting for the Christian. That is not fitting for the Christian. So he speaks of our imitation, but notice verse 3, our holiness. Let's look at verse 3. You would say, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. If love is to be enthroned, that means that lust is to be dethroned. Lust is to be dethroned. This is why it says, but fornication. It's that Greek word, pornea. It's where we get that word today, pornography. And notice what he says, if you're walking in love, these things will not be present in your life. This is here, fornication, a broad word describing sexual sin or activity of sexual sin outside of marriage. Fornication. It's important that we realize this. If we want to walk in love. Because God does not bless a relationship that is living in sin. (laughs) It's always interesting when you receive people that want prayer and they come up and they say, would you just pray for us and just for our relationship and that God would just bless us. And I always ask, well, how long have you been married? Oh, we're we're not married. We just live together. I want you to know something. God's not going to bless that. So don't lie to yourself thinking that God's going to bless that. God doesn't bless something where there's compromise of sin. This is why he said if there is any type of sexual activity or sin outside of the confounds of marriage, the covenant of marriage, let these things not be named among you. Notice he says fornication, and then he goes to the second one, uncleanness. A dirty moral behavior that is also any other type of sensual or sexual sins in where you dishonor your body through the carnal desires of the flesh. Uncleanness, not only fornication, but anything other that has to do with sexual sins. We have to be very careful, even as Christians, if we're walking in love, be careful what you watch. Be careful what you let your eyes see. Here he's giving a warning to it. Because God did not call us to uncleanness. God called us to holiness. And while fornication can be a a sin that is outside of marriage, think about all the sins that take place inside of marriage. You may say, well, you know what? I, I, I never committed adultery, but did you look at that woman with lust in your heart? What did Jesus say in, in Matthew chapter 5? He says, you have heard it said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It only takes for you to look and to desire and to lust in a very sexual, inappropriate way. And God sees it already as adultery. So do you see here that he's saying that if you're going to walk in love, that fornication, uncleanness should not be a part of your life. In fact, he even goes on and he says covetousness. He calls it greed here. In verse 3, that covetousness, let it not even be named among you. What is covetousness? Greed, a desire for pleasure. The same likewise is motivated by lust. A desire to have something that brings you pleasure, that satisfies you. You know what greed is? In its simplest form, greed is never satisfied, always wanting more. When you're never satisfied, you just want more of something always. You see something, you start to chase it. You start to pursue it. You look at what someone else has. Well, I want that too. And whatever I have to do, I'm going to get it. And I want to ask you something. If you're satisfied in Jesus today, 
If today you're satisfied in Jesus, then why do you need more of something else? Why do you need more of something else if today you're satisfied in Jesus? Why are you not content here? So it speaks of a selfish attitude that is ungrateful. We have to learn that as we're walking in love, we're content with the things that God has given us. We're walking in love. We're walking in obedience. Paul told Timothy, he told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Did you write that down this morning? 1 Timothy 6, 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Why does he say this? Because we brought nothing into this world. You came into this world, you brought nothing. And certainly we will carry nothing out. Why are you so now anxious? You're going to carry nothing out of this world. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Be careful that lust doesn't lead you to striving. Or just striving, chasing everything that comes your way, distracting you instead of being an imitator of God. Instead of being content. Godliness with contentment, it is great gain. There was a story about a king who fell into a very hard and heavy case of depression and discouragement. And he went to see a doctor and the doctor told him, well, you have a very serious matter of discouragement and of depression and the only thing that's going to cure you is if you find now a man who is content and you take his shirt and you wear his shirt of a man that is content. You said, you, you, you serious? He said, yes, go look for a man that is content. Ask him to give you his shirt. You wear that shirt. That is going to now help you snap out of this depression and now discouragement. This, so he sends out his officers in his kingdom to go out all the kingdom now and to look for such a man that was content. And after searching in the highways and the byways, they come back to this king and they said, King, we found a man who is content in your kingdom. One man we found who is content in your kingdom. However, he doesn't own a shirt. Think about the simplicity. Simplicity. You want to walk in love? You're going to be a person that is simple. You don't need a lot of things. You're not chasing after the things of this world. You see, it's so sad to see that these sins invaded the homes of Christians, the covetousness, the greed now. And they've brought grief to the local churches. Now, you, you may think when you see covetousness there next to the sexual sins, you're saying, well, this is out of place here. But no, these two sins are only different expressions. They're only different expressions of the same basic weakness of our fallen nature. It's speaking of uncontrolled appetites where you can't control those appetites to the point where they become vices and addictions. And you know what happens when you allow these uncontrolled appetites to have a grip in your life? They divide people. How many stories have you heard of greed dividing families? Because people are obsessed with material things. Somebody passes away, the family's fighting over the things. Why? Because it's all about material things. That's all you think about. There's, there's nothing spiritual about what comes out of your mouth. You're just thinking about yourself. And it's very sad to see that this dominating people, that this, this greed, this covetousness. So here he's saying the fornicator and the covetous person each desire to satisfy, to gratify the appetites of the flesh by taking that which doesn't belong to them. Be very careful that today you're not trying to take something that doesn't belong to you. You know what that's called? Greed. Don't become greedy trying to take something that doesn't belong to you. Here he's talking about it. In fact, verse 3, it says, Let it not even be named among you as it's fitting for the saints. There is no place for this among God's people. There should not even be hints, hints of these things. This should be unthinkable for the child of God. So that we live in a manner that is fitting for a saint. What is a saint? One that is set apart for God. Set apart to serve God. 
that we no longer walk in the darkness of the world, that, we, that the world has no reason to suspect these sins in your life. We should not give the world a reason to suspect fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, and the life of the believer. In fact, in verse 3, where he says that, you, that it is not fitting for the saints, he's saying, be who you are in Jesus. Would you write that down today? Be who you are in Jesus. Why? It's beneath the dignity of a saint to indulge himself in sins that belong to the world. That's beneath the dignity of what God's called you. So he's warning now against sexual sins that are prevalent in that day as they are today. Why is he telling them all this? Because there in Ephesus, it was approved sexual sin within the culture of Paul's day. They had a temple that they worship a goddess Diana, the, the goddess of sexual immorality and sin. But he's saying this should be not accepted among believers. Why? Because many people, many new believers were growing up, had come to faith in Christ, and were being brought up in a very promiscuous culture. So he's saying, although and because, and I understand it's approved in the culture, but the culture should not dominate your life. You shouldn't be an imitator of the culture. This is not accepted among the believers. The government, notice even today, may tolerate things. They may pass laws that legislate behavior that generations ago, it would be morally repulsive in the things that you see taking place today. But the Holy Spirit does not tolerate these sins. The Holy Spirit doesn't put up with this. Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. I received a picture a few days ago, the front cover of a newspaper article by somebody that comes to the church here that said that the city in Downey had, has approved where an old Denny's was at, that now where that old Denny's was at, that the business has moved out in that location, that there would be a very promiscuous bar there here in the city of Downey, in your city where you go to church. How many of us know that in the corner of Imperial and Woodruff, there's still a Bible teaching church that is going to continue to be a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Amen. So here he's saying the conduct of the Christian is not to be controlled by the culture. The conduct of the Christian is to be controlled by the Spirit. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says, for all that is in the world, think about this, everything that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, it describes the lust in three different categories. It divides it, the lust of the flesh, anything that brings you pleasure. <laughs> the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, anything that you see that you say, I want that now. <laughs> the lust of the eyes, and then the pride of life. What's the pride of life? I want power. I want status. <laughs> All of those things, I want recognition. I want acknowledgement. That is not of the Father. That is of the world. So don't be pulled into lust. Let love be enthroned in your life. And then notice verse 4. What does it say? Neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Verse 4, he says, not only things that you may act upon, but also things that you may say. Filthiness, it describes obscene stories, impurity in speech, things that are shameful. Think about the conversations that take place. The break room of your job, between your friends, behind closed doors. If you're going to walk in love, you should also walk in purity in the way that you talk. It should not be noticed filthy, dirty, impure, or foolish. Speaks of a language or a vocabulary now that brings no value to spiritual things. Why is it that you're given over to foolish talking? Or impure speech? Or you're always sarcastic? That's a big one even within believers. Now, sarcasm is not always funny. In fact, it demonstrates spiritual immaturity at times. So he's saying, have no part with these things. It cheapens the man and the woman of God. It doesn't edify anyone. It doesn't minister to anyone. In the previous chapter in Ephesians 4, he already said that it may impart grace to the hearers. Let your speech be seasoned with grace 
that everyone who hears may be edified. That you would not make people stumble by the way that you talk. Notice what he continues in verse 4. He says, or coarse jesting. Coarse jesting. What does that mean? Where you're able to turn something easily into something that it's not. That's inappropriate. A sexual innuendo. You say something and it becomes funny because you affiliate it with something that is sexual or inappropriate. Every time that comes out of your mouth, it says that should not be. Where there should be humor in dirty jokes. You see how he's drawing the line here that you would not lower your standard in vulgar talk? That is the mold. That is the tendency of the world. And that's why what you talk about is always an indication of your character. What you talk about, it's an indication of your character. In fact, there, there's two things that really give an indication of a person's character. Notice one thing. What makes them laugh will show you their character, and what makes them weep will show you their character. Why? Because if your character is a godly character, an improper, obscene joke, a coarse joke, is not funny to you. There's nothing funny about something that is sexual or inappropriate. Nothing funny to the man and the woman of God. If you're a person of God, nothing is humorous. Nothing's funny about that type of language or that type of joke. So he's saying here, walking in love, walking in love, and talking in lust are incompatible. They don't go with one another. So watch the way you live and watch the way that also you talk. Because the things that you say out of your lips are because they came out of your heart. And you may think, well, it's so funny. No, it's not. Luke chapter 6, verse 45, it says, A good man out of the good treasures of his heart brings out good fruit. Everything you say is fruit. It's either good fruit or it's rotten. And an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart brings forth evil. But of the abundance of the heart, but out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And again it says, but rather giving of thanks because these things are not fitting for the saints. These things are not for you. In fact, you should have an attitude of reverence, which means gratitude. Reverence means gratitude. That you don't focus on saying things that are inappropriate or always trying to be funny inappropriately. But with your lips, you're using them to now give and display Christian values and truths that you live by now. You notice how he's describing this? He says, let there be thankfulness to God. When you talk, that people would be encouraged, that they would be edified because you're thanking God in your attitude, in your actions, in your speech. This is certainly here in verse 4, the best way to glorify God, the best way to glorify God and to keep your conversations pure. Verse 4, it would say, it's not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. When you talk, give thanks. Speak with gratitude. Praise the Lord. There's some people that always think that they need to talk. It's incredible. If there's no one talking, they just think, I need to fill up this empty space. I need to start talking right now. And here he's going to say, since you have a lot to say, since you always want to talk, then elevate your conversations. Elevate your conversations to a higher standard. Notice how he's describing this. So that our tongues express a gratitude to God for all that He's done and we're using, selecting our words to encourage other people so that they think seriously about spiritual things. That you would provoke one another to love and good works. That you'd stir one another up because of the way that you talk. But in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul would tell the church in, in Colossae, he would say, let the Word of God dwell richly in you. When the Word of God is in your heart, notice what's going to come out of your lips. Richly in all wisdom, teaching. You're going to start teaching people instead of talking that way. Admonishing. In fact, people are going to know you to be an encourager. Every time I talk to that person, I'm so refreshed and encouraged. They're teaching me. They're encouraging me now. They're not talking about other people. They're not talk saying inappropriate things. Now they're teaching me. Now they're encouraging me. In psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. We're going to start talking to one another about the Bible now. 
Isn't that what we should do as believers? Instead of talking about inappropriate things or about other people, start talking about the Bible with one another. It'll edify one another because it brings now grace in your hearts to the Lord. Christians who have God's heart, word in their heart, if you have God's word in your heart right now, planted in your heart, you will always have your word seasoned with grace that you will know how to answer one to another. You'll know how to answer one to another. But finally, look at our accountability. We saw our imitation, our holiness, in our accountability. Verse 5. For this you know, underline that, this you know, you know this already. You can be sure that no fornicator, no one living in sexual sin, know this today if you're here. And maybe there's this type of sin taking place in your life. No unclean person, if there's any secret sin, unclean, impure sin taking place. No covetous man, no one that's dominated by greed, controlled by the flesh, a desire to have something that doesn't belong to you. Notice what it says, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Very clear. Very clear. The result of these sins are idolatry. Why? Because it's anything that takes the place of your worship with God. Your worship for God. And a greedy person is an idolater because they're worshiping the things of this world instead of worshiping the things of God. Are you worshiping God or are you worshiping the things of this world? It said, love as Christ has loved and He gave Himself. And He gave Himself now. Those that practice such things have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. God will not tolerate or put up with these sins. So people who deliberately and persistently live in sin will not share in the kingdom of God. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, he spoke about this. What did he say? Now the works of the flesh are evident. It's so obvious when you're walking in the flesh. It's obvious. You may think you're walking in love, but it's obvious, he's saying. In fact, it says, it's adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness. Galatians 5, 20, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition. Notice all of these things are works of now the flesh, dissensions and heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revileries, and the like, anything like this. And I tell you beforehand, notice Paul says, and I told you in time past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know what he says next? But the fruit of the Spirit is love. (laughs) The morally unclean person, the covetous person, will have now enjoying that fornicator in judgment. This is why we have to have a regeneration that leads to repentance in order for it to be real. It can't be business as usual and then you think that you're going to be saved if you're living that same lifestyle. Notice verse 6, as it would say, let no one deceive you with empty words, words that are vain, that are, words that are hollow. Let no one try to excuse those sins by compromising, by calling them a liberty now, and to minimize the consequences of sin. Well, you can live for whatever makes you happy. That's a deception. That's a lie. That's a teaching that lacks substance now to the divine authority of what Scripture says. Don't be fooled by a false assurance of your salvation if you're living in persistent sin. Where you're showing no shame of sins, where there's no hunger for holiness or for purity now or for God, and thinking, I can sin and get away with it. No, you can't. I want you to know this morning as you've come in, you can't live in sin after knowing the truth. After knowing the truth, you cannot live in sin and get away with it. You may think you're having fun right now, but you're not going to get away with it. So you need to repent. In Romans, it would say, how then shall we, what should we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace would abound? Certainly not. Stop it right there. How should we who died to the old man, how should we who died to sin live any longer in it? Guard yourself against lust, against deception, so that there is a true conversion that demonstrates new life. It's not business as usual. And notice verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of these things, 
They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And because of these things, they'll also inherit judgment. They'll inherit judgment on those who disobey God. In fact, he calls them sons of disobedience. Why are they called sons of disobedience? Because they're following or imitating the world and sin. Paul told Timothy, let anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, if you call on the name of the Lord today, depart from iniquity. So therefore, verse 7, as we conclude here, do not be partakers with them. What does he say? Therefore, don't participate with them. Maybe you're here today and you're affiliating yourself. You are participating. You're becoming a partner with someone who does these things. Here he's exhorting you, don't do it, stop it. Don't compromise when being tempted to participate in immoral behavior. God demands, God is telling us in his word today, if you're here, have ears to hear, that you would now have a clean break or break away now from that ungodly lifestyle of those unregenerate days, the days before you came to Christ. Break away from those things. Because when you break away from those things, it's a proof that not only you're a, a professor of your faith, but you know what, I, I profess Christianity, but you're also a possessor of your faith. That you possess Christ. You see, it's not only enough to profess Christianity. Lives that are following Christ, that are walking in love, they don't only profess it, they also possess it. They possess their faith in Christ Jesus. Don't be partakers with them. What did Paul tell the church in Corinth? He said, don't be unequally yoked. Don't be unequally. Well, you just don't know I'm going to save them for Jesus. No, you're not. You just don't know I'm going to compromise a little bit here and there. And guess what it does? It pulls you away from God. In fact, he would say here, what kind of fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? You need to break away now. Don't be partakers. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it would say this, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he gives us a list describing the same thing that Paul would say. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11 it says, but such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified now in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. How many of us can praise God that we were washed, sanctified, and justified? But such were some of you. And now you've been washed, now you've been sanctified, you've been set apart, now you've been justified. Now you are right with God. There are some today that need to be washed. They need to be sanctified, need to be set apart by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of the Lamb, and they need to be justified that they can be right with God. Maybe that's you today. And you're saying, Lord, today, I want to be washed, sanctified, and justified. I want to walk in love. I want to forsake. I want to now put aside any of these things that are the work of the flesh so I can walk in love as an imitator, an imitator of God. And give myself over to people as Christ has given himself for me. So if that's you today, if you, want to say, if you say, I want to be washed today. I want to be sanctified. I want to be set apart for God once and for all. And I want to be justified. Would you just today, as we bow our heads and close our eyes.